This is Africa Digest. Good evening and welcome to Africa Digest. You're listening to Channel Africa, giving you news from an African perspective. We're broadcasting to you from our studios in Johannesburg, South Africa. And we're available online on www.channelafrica.co.za. My name is Samora Mangesi, driving the show with Onelin Tsinsino, Sitle Zuma, as well as Neto Chimani. Some top stories on Africa Digest at this hour. A second Zimbabwean cabinet minister arrested on abuse of office allegations. Two people have been shot dead and several others wounded in clashes between Guinean police and protesters at a funeral march for those killed in the recent anti-government demonstrations. In economics, TransUnion South Africa's Vehicle Pricing Index shows that vehicle sales maintained a steady decline despite new vehicle prices uh, increasing, staying under inflation for the past two years. And in sport, Springboks fans have gathered at the Oartambo International Airport to meet the team on their arrival from Japan. But right now, let's cross on over to the news desk for your latest news bulletin. Here is Onelens Insi. SABC News. Independent and impartial. From an African perspective. Thank you, Samara. South Sudan rebel leader Riek Mashar and President Salva Kiir will hold the third face-to-face meeting in the Ugandan capital Kampala on Thursday. Also expected at the meeting is Abdel Fattah Burhan, leader of the new government in neighboring Sudan. The meeting between the two will focus on issues which remain to be solved ahead of the formation of a government of national unity on the 12th of this month. Luan Matok, another dignitary uh, to the peace agreement, emphasizes the importance of fulfilling all clauses of the peace agreement, including security. Security arrangement to pave the way for the formation of Artikono. Before you rush to formation of the government, you must have a security arrangement in place. The issue of the number of states and the, the boundaries is critical. You cannot form the Artigono without fixed number of states. So it is structurally affects the formation of the government. The authorities in Nigeria's southwestern Oyo state say they have rescued more than 250 people from an illegal detention center in the city of Ibadan. A police spokesperson said many were shackled and some had been there for as long as 10 years. Local media says that many such centers had been in existence in the city for several years, with clerics using them as corrective homes for Nautich people. The president of Mali has urged people to unite behind the country's army following militants' attacks that have killed around 50 soldiers over the last week. He said the stability and the very existence of the country were at stake, the BBC's Wolros reports. Ibrahim Boubacar Keita's call for people to unite behind the army and not to undermine its morale comes at a time when there's growing anger that the highly mobile militants appear to be winning the war, and not for the first time. Seven years ago, militants seized most of northern Mali, a move that prompted France to intervene. Thousands of French troops are still in the region, but along with soldiers from several West African armies, they've been unable to stop the attacks by the Islamic State in the Greater Sahara and Al-Qaeda-linked militants. 
Rwandan President Paul Kagame has announced changes to the cabinet and army, including the appointment of a new foreign affairs minister. Kagame also made changes in the leadership of reserve forces, special operations, and at the command and staff college. Calls to the president's office and other government officials to comment on the reasons for the reshuffle have not been answered. Lastly, the Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan says Kurdish forces are still active in northern Syria, despite agreeing to leave under deals brokered by Russia and the United States. Erdogan said he did not believe assurances from Washington that the Kurds had left the zone with Turkish forces moved into last month. Channel African News, I am Onelin Sinzi. SABC News, independent and impartial. From an African perspective. A second cabinet minister in Zimbabwe was on Monday arrested on abuse of office allegations from the time President Emerson Nagwagwa sharpened his teeth against corruption. Minister of State for Presidential Affairs, Joram Gumbo, was arrested for his involvement in the uh, 37 million US dollar arising from four incidents when he was still transport minister. Ordinary citizens and business players are saying the arrests lack some seriousness, whilst government is complaining the media is failing to adequately report corruption matters. Simon Muchemo reports from Harare. Zimbabwe's Minister of State for Presidential Affairs, Joram Gumbo, was on Monday arrested for his involvement in nearly 37 million US dollar corruption deals. This is the second of such an arrest under President Emerson Mnangagwa over corruption, following another arrest of Minister of Tourism, Priska Mfumira, for nearly 100 million US dollars corruption cases. While Gumbo was later released in the hands of his lawyer, Authorities indicated Tuesday he was going to appear in court for his initial remand. It is alleged Gumbo facilitated the awarding of 33 million US dollar airport deal to a preferred entity. He favored his relatives in the awarding of Air Zimbabwe deals. He is accused of reinstating executives who would have been fired for corruption and incompetence. While the latest arrest could be seen as a sign of commitment to fight corruption, Zimbabweans have expressed mixed feelings over the matter. An economic analyst, Clemens Mtembo, bemoaned the lack of confidence in the business sector owing to little action against corruption in Zimbabwe. Meanwhile, following the arrest of Minister Gumbo on Monday, the media carried varying articles over the matter leading to the government mouthpiece issuing a complaint. 
Secretary for Information Nick Mangwana raised concern on the official Ministry of Information Twitter handle quitting the discrepancies. Zimbabwe is known for its poor human rights ratings in the world, especially against journalists. In most cases, investigating top government officials calls for the intimidation of journalists by state security, hence the rise of speculation and distortion of information. While the move by the Munangagwa-led government on corruption could be the way to go, confidence is still lacking in the country owing to past experiences during the late Robert Mugabe's era. Channel Africa spoke to Elias Mambo, a renowned investigative journalist and editor-in-chief of the Morning Post, who had this to say. In Harare, Zimbabwe for Channel Africa, this is Simon Muchemwa. South Sudan rebel leader Riek Mashar and President Salva Kiir will hold the third face-to-face meeting in the Ugandan capital Kampala on Thursday. Abdel Fattah Baran, leader of the new government in neighboring Sudan, is also expected at the meeting. James Shimanyula reports. The announcement of the meeting in the Ugandan capital Kampala was made by Puok Both Baluang, Public Relations Chief for South Sudan Rebel Leader Riek Machar. The meeting between Riek Machar and President Kir will focus on issues that remain to be resolved ahead of the formation of a government of national unity on the 12th of this month, as Peter Majang and Watt, one of the signatories to the agreement, confirms. It's basically to deliberate on issues that have not been implemented. The issues include the establishment of a new national army comprising 83,000 troops drawn from fighters loyal to 15 leaders that signed the peace agreement last year. The Kampala meeting marks the third time that Machar and Kir are meeting face-to-face since the peace agreement was signed. Stephen Kual, Riek Machar, the Secretary General for Foreign Affairs, sheds light on the six months that he and his colleagues have been in Ijoba to prepare for the formation of a government of national unity. The first month, it took us a hard time for us to agree as opposition collectively to come and work in Juba. That took a lot of time, and even including Dr. Riyadh is not yet here in Juba. 
Luwal Matok, another signatory to the peace agreement, emphasizes the importance of fulfilling all clauses of the peace agreement, including security. Security arrangement to pave the way for the formation of Article. Before you rush to formation of the government, you must have a security arrangement in place. The issue of the number of states and the, and the boundaries is critical. You cannot form the Artigono without fixed number of states. So it is structurally affects the formation of the government. Johnston Luwak, one of the Juba government's representatives, attests to the fact that the meeting will take place in Kampala. We have received an invitation to attend the Grunters meeting, but is still waiting for more information regarding the preparation for how this meeting... Malwal Garang, another representative of the Juba government led by President Salva Kir, makes it clear that no further changes will be made as time ticks away to the formation of a government of national unity. We cannot continue extending the period all the time. We must have to see into it that if there is going to be extension, then uh, the tasks which are supposed to be implemented, they, has, they have to be implemented on time and the government has to be formed. A resident of Juba who preferred to remain anonymous reflects on the extensive and intensive fighting that occurred in South Sudan in 2016. What happened in 2016, it was tragic and it caused a lot of lives of people, so we will not repeat it again. That was a resident of South Sudan's capital, Yuma, who preferred not to be named. He was briefly flashing back to chaos that erupted in the capital, Yuba, in 2016. The 2016 chaos were preceded by fighting that flared up in Juba in 2013. The very fighting that forced rebel leader Riek Machar to flee on foot from Juba and ended up crossing in neighboring Democratic Republic of Congo. Meanwhile, the International Crisis Group has warned that if the government of national unity is formed, in South Sudan, without all parties agreeing on all clauses of the agreement, the country could slide back into fighting. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is James Shimanyula. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. What we want to achieve is a healthy and vibrant economy, which can ensure full employment to our people. The government concurs with the views of the Black Economic Empowerment Council report that it is now necessary to make our policies on Black Economic Empowerment more explicit. Last May, I asked constituencies at NetLab to discuss youth employment incentives. I'm pleased that discussions have been concluded and that agreement has been reached on key principles. We are on an ambitious drive to industrialize, to attract investment, and to create more jobs for the youth of our country. They don't have jobs. I've tried looking for a job for a year and a half now. The challenges were periods and the, the level of education which I have. Channel Africa. 
Two people were shot dead and several others wounded in clashes between Guinean police and protesters at a funeral march for those killed in the recent anti-government demonstrations. Violence erupted as hundreds marched in the capital, Conakry, carrying coffins of people killed in unrest since mid-October that was uh, that has shaken the West African country. Demonstrators have taken to the streets and uh, taken over... Uh, taken to the streets over suspicions that President Alpha Conde is seeking to prolong his rule. To discuss this further, we're joined on the line by Yali Guyewe from Guinea's uh, National Front for the Defense of the Constitution. He's joining us from the capital, Conakry. Uh, Yali, thank you very much for joining us. Okay. Can you call me with the other number that we have on WhatsApp? Uh, sorry, what was that, Yali? Okay, no problem. We can talk with this one. All right. Uh, the opposition leader, Shelo uh, Delane Diallo, has said that the two people who were killed yesterday were killed by live bullets. Are you able to confirm this? Yali, are you there? Okay. Can you call me with the other number that we have on WhatsApp? All right, we shall try and do that. Uh, it seems like we're having a difficulty with our line. Uh, we, we shall try and get Yali back to discuss this a little bit further. Um, and uh, we can actually see and find out a little bit more about what's happening all the way in Guinea. Residents from Brooklyn and Waterkloof in South Africa's capital, Pretoria, were earlier reported to go to court today in an attempt to remove refugees who are staging a sit-in outside the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees, uh, the UNHCR offices. The Homeowners Association have approached the High Court in Pretoria seeking an order against the refugees, citing the contravention of municipal bylaws. Joan Allison from the UNHCR told Channel Africa's Benjamin Mushan that although the communities were planning to go to the courts, they were also doing their best part to uh, assist the protesters outside the UNHCR offices. Nishan Balton, executive director of the Kathrada Foundation, echoed this sentiment, saying that there has been a concerted effort from various agencies in the communities to intervene in a hopeful manner to assist the plight of the refugees. Quite interesting to see the, the, the homeowners in the area are also, even though they have put in this uh, application, they're also providing assistance to the protesters that are outside the office. So many of them have come forward providing food, providing clothes, providing tents, many different things, I mean, water. And I think that's quite interesting. On the one hand, uh, yes, they have uh, submitted a, an application. But on the other hand, they also see the plight of, of the people in front of, of part of the office and are also assisting them. But what we're also looking at is really how to resolve the issue in a peaceful manner. I think we were all very concerned um, what happened in Cape Town in front of the office, and I think what we're really asking for is for all people involved to be quite peaceful. We're engaging with the refugees and um, the refugee protesters, not just the refugees in front of the offices, but also outside the offices, um, who have been affected by the violence, as well as the South Africans, as you have mentioned. This is one humanitarian situation, but it's also a situation where we need to look at immediate, medium-term, and long-term solutions to some of the challenges about the issues of asylum procedures in South Africa. And in particular, it's the documentation 
issue is the main one of the main issues. Um, it's not documentation in terms of right to work and go to school, but it's also documentation in terms of um, birth registration. So the procedures are quite kind of cumbersome, but we're looking to see how we resolve that. But back to the homeowners um, issue, I think we are also we also like to get um, them involved. We do not want to really see a situation like we had. That is really a last resort. And I mm-hmm. must make very clear, it's not UNHCR that asked the police to come in. This was a high court order that, um, that was enforced by the, by the police there. It's very unfortunate that we are getting to this um, point. And this is, I think, we have a, an opportunity here in Pretoria is to try to resolve it peacefully before this. Um, if it, I understand the meeting today. So it, uh, the court order has not been, I think, um, issued, but it's being discussed today in Pretoria. Okay. So I don't have the latest on that. So maybe um, it will be resolved before, uh, before, the, before the end of this interview. Sure. Nishan, what are your thoughts on that, the response of, of these homeowners? Do you think it's a responsible one? Very interesting viewpoint that's coming out from Joanne because she's showing the dual response from the communities. They're helping, but also in the same time uh, trying to get things sorted around those uh, communities. And I think the response is very understandable in that regard because on the one hand, as homeowners or property owners, they would be feeling in a sense that there's a, a problem here that is not of their making, in initially with very little understanding. And that was Nishan Belton, Executive Director of the Kathrada Foundation, and Joan Allison uh, from the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees, speaking to Benjamin Mushatama. Now, earlier on, we did uh, have Yali Kuyeye from Guinea's National Front for the Defense of the Constitution. We do have him back on the line, joining us from the capital in Conakry. Uh, Yali, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much. Now, the opposition leader uh, has said that two people who were killed yesterday were killed by live bullets. Are you able to confirm this for us? Yeah, we we do not have the autopsy reports, but but we can confirm that these are live bullets because first we saw the people who were touched during the funeral ceremony, but also because the images of wounded and bullet debris exist everywhere. And uh, how many people have been killed so far as a result of clashes between demonstrators and security forces? We have up to, to uh, four, 14 now. Uh, yesterday we had two. Mm-hmm. Yesterday, yesterday we had two plus the, the others one. All right. Now, the protests have been going on for quite some time. Has it been confirmed that President Alpha Conde wants to extend his rule, or is it still a rumor at this point that he will run for office again when his term expires next year? He did not expressly say, I want a third term, but it is also not, uh, it is uh, not a rumor either. Things have become clearer as we have seen billions being spent on the campaign for constitutional change when only amendments are possible according to the Constitution. The President of the Republic wishes to change it completely in order to establish a new Republic and thus to skip constitutional looks, uh, yeah, looks that can, cannot uh, be subject to change as the number and the duration of mandates. 
And could you take us through what the mood in the capital uh, is like in light of the protests and in light of uh, the 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 um, the deaths that we've seen? Yeah, it's it's an indignation, dehumanization, but above all, the determination to go all the way in this civil civic struggle. The authorities on each of their actions depress the president of the republic in his dictatorship. But the FNDC is ready to go all the way to uphold the constitutional the constitution today and forever in the Republic of Guinea. Now, Yali, could you take us through uh, maybe what are some of the other things that could have directly added to the, 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 the fire or fueled this fire that is now uh, pretty much what what we could say is getting out of hand um is this something that has been building for a long time even before uh, president alpha conde started seeking to prolong his rule yeah it's it's things that did, did uh did not start today the the since the 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 the, the beginning of his, third, his second mandate they have they had uh, uh they had started uh, uh, making campaign for that, and uh, uh, we we also get prepared because we knew that this situ- this situation could happen. All right. Well, Yali, thank you very much for joining us. You're welcome. Thank you so much. Uh, and that was Yali Guyeye from uh, Guinea's National Front for the Defense of the Constitution on the line from the capital, Conakry. A very big thank you to him for joining us yet again. This is Africa Digest. This July, Channel Africa brings you Life by Design, a show aimed to inspire you to live your life by purpose. Starting from Monday, the 8th at 8 a.m. to 9 a.m. Central African time, only on Channel Africa, the The African African Perspective. Just a reminder, Spotlight Africa. A feature program that showcases and highlights African issues from an African perspective can be heard every Wednesday at 1000 hours UCT, with repeats on Wednesday at 2000 hours, Thursday at 300 hours, and Sunday at 1300 hours UCT. Listen to Spotlight Africa, a program that interrogates issues from an African perspective. Spotlight Africa. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. What we want to achieve is a healthy and vibrant economy which can ensure full employment, 
to our people. The government concurs with the views of the Black Economic Empowerment Council report that it is now necessary to make our policies on Black Economic Empowerment more explicit. Last May, I asked constituencies at Netlec to discuss youth employment incentives. I'm pleased that discussions have been concluded and that agreement has been reached on key principles. We are on an ambitious drive to industrialize, to attract investment and to create more jobs for the youth of our country. They don't have jobs. Tried looking for a job for it's a year and a half now. The challenges were experience and the, the level of education which I have. Channel Africa. And right now it's time for us to cross on over to the news desk. Here's on a with your latest news headlines. SABC News, independent and impartial. From an African perspective. South Sudan rebel leader Riek Machar and President Salva Kiir to hold the third face-to-face meeting in the Ugandan capital Kampala on Thursday. The president of Mali urges people to unite behind the country's army following militant attacks that killed around 50 soldiers over the weekend. And Uganda denies intent to introduce a bill targeting homosexuals. Channel African News, I am Onelintzinzi. This is Africa Digest. South Africa is this month observing the National Disability Rights Awareness Month, which aims to increase awareness about the rights of persons with disabilities as equal citizens among society. Some people with disabilities in the country continue to be excluded from the mainstream of society and are sometimes prevented from accessing fundamental societal, political and economic rights. To discuss this further, we're joined on the line by Zuki Swanzo, Senior Manager for Strategy and Research at the National Council of and for Persons with Disability, the NCPD. Uh, Zuki, so thank you very much for joining us. Good day. Thank you so much for inviting us and good day to listeners. Now, why is it necessary to have a month dedicated to raising awareness around the rights of persons with disabilities? Because as much as um, we have um, enshrined in our constitution that um, section 9 of our constitution that people are equal and as much as we have relevant legislation such as or, or treaties that we have signed as a country such as the United Nations Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities and the Prevention of Equality and Unfair Discrimination as well as the White Paper on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities, White Paper 6 on Inclusion, we are still battling to ensure the inclusion of disabled people in, in our country. So it is necessary for us to plead to everyone to observe you know, from government to schools and look into their line of work and ask themselves if they're not leaving anyone behind because the reality on the ground is that disabled people still continue to be marginalized and they still don't participate on an equal basis with everybody else due to the barriers that they encounter, such as physical barriers, okay, to a certain extent legislation 
barriers, cultural barriers, infrastructure, um, communication barriers, information barriers. This becomes very difficult for a child to to go to school, to enroll at a school, get an education, let alone uh, receive employment and contribute to the economy. And would you say that there's enough that's been done to improve the quality of life of persons with disabilities over the years? There has been some changes, I'm not going to lie to you. Like I've been saying, you know, the, um, in 2006, we signed the United Nations Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities as a country. You know, we've set, the NDP recently set a target of ensuring that 7% of persons with disabilities become employed, you know. Um, 5% of persons with disabilities are included in um, procurement or rather enterprise um, development initiatives with the government. So, yes, we have made some strides, but it's just that the wheels seem to be turning really slowly. And the thing is, we are losing out on a particular pool of talent if we don't include a certain group of people because involving everyone a wider group of, of, of people in any, any economic activity can actually drive innovation and make us competitive. And there's been, um, there has been a lot of evidence that proves that countries like America, you know, they adopted the Americans with Disabilities Act way before the United Nations Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities. And then they were the first ones to come up with the universal design concept, a concept um, that speaks to the built environment being accessible to everyone. Now, this is actually a concept that was um, that was coined by a disabled person. You know, this is a concept that has um, promoted innovation in many sectors, such as technology. How, but it was a disabled person who actually coined that concept based on their experiences and realized that we actually should try and create products and services that are usable by everyone as well as the built environment, by everyone to the greatest extent possible. And what about ensuring their participation in the social, economic and political life? How is the country faring in that department? Um, like, it, it, it's the same story, right? There are some changes. We are observing some changes, right? And some are visible, but the wheels are turning quite slowly. And I don't want to get to a point where I mention certain political parties, but I mean, we do have disabled people in parliament. South Africa is one of the few countries that actually do have, um, um, a, who, we had a minister who was a blind person. You know, um, we had a deputy minister of social development who was also a person with an impairment. But um, people with disabilities still find themselves um, depending largely on grants and not participating fully on an equal basis with everybody else. And what would you regard as a key challenge being experienced by persons with disabilities in exercising their rights as equal citizens? You know, we often look at um, things that are more tangible, like the built environment. Often people point to that, but I think that... um, a mindset shift. I believe that everything starts in the mind. You know, what you think is essentially what you um, translate into your actions. So we have um, people that are tasked to implement these policies 
that are so beautiful that do exist. But what is their mindset with regards to persons with disabilities when it comes to persons with disabilities? So I would say um, attitudinal barriers remain the biggest um, barriers that um, basically close people's minds from, um, um, from understanding and acknowledging that we are all diverse and we all have an equal, so we all have a right to participate um, with the right resources in an enabling environment. And uh, what events do you have lined up to observe the month and how can people support this cause? Okay, so um, from the Ministry of the Department of um, Women and Children with Disabilities, there is a full calendar that is in place. There's a lot of events from government to government departments to schools where they encourage dialogues and these have been um, given, these, these spread across the entire month um, with each week having a particular theme. The first week was dedicated to children. So there have been a lot of dialogues. If um, dialogues aimed at speaking about, um, for, for instance, the rights of children and inclusive education and things like that. The second week was then dedicated to, I think we're in, we're in the second week, right? Yes, dedicated to the built environment, you know, um, encouraging more that against architects, you know, people that are responsible for building these these buildings that are beautiful yet not practical um, and realizing how they're leaving other people behind. Um, so there's quite a number of events from government, civil society, and these can be found at the ministry. It's a whole calendar from the Ministry of the Department of Women and Persons with Disabilities. All right, Zukiswa, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much. That was Zukiswa Nzo, Senior Manager for Strategy and Research at the National Council of and for Persons with Disability, the NCPD. This is Africa Digest. Just a reminder, Spotlight Africa, a feature program that showcases and highlights African issues from an African perspective, can be heard every Wednesday at 1000 hours UCT, which repeats on Wednesday at 2000 hours, Thursday at 300 hours, and Sunday at 1300 hours UCT. Listen to Spotlight Africa a program that interrogates issues from an African perspective. Spotlight Africa. We're getting used to hearing about the clashes between supporters of democracy in Hong Kong and those loyal to Chinese government in Beijing. But what might surprise you is that the latest clashes have also been taking place in other countries too, like America, Canada, Australia and the UK. 
In the British cities of Birmingham, Liverpool, Sheffield and York, students from mainland China have confronted pro-Hong Kong democracy campaigners and the confrontations have turned violent on at least one occasion. But now universities around the world stand uh, accused of treating Chinese students with a light touch, indeed uh, sometimes helping them to stop the Hong Kong democracy campaigners, as the BBC's Paul Moss reports. Would you like to sign petitions to support Hong Kong's protests? It wasn't an easy task. On a rather cold, rainy evening in the northern English city of Sheffield, a group of students from Hong Kong were trying to get passers-by to sign a petition. Excuse me, would you like to support democracy in Hong Kong? There weren't many takers. Most people just rushed past. But for the Hong Kong democracy campaigners, this experience wasn't nearly so bad as another recent occasion when they set up a stall in Sheffield. Cecilia Chong was handing out leaflets when another group of students from mainland China showed up. They started swearing at us and also a guy, he grabbed one of our flag and then he broke it. And then after that, there was a guy throw a glass bottle. He was aiming at me. He threw a glass bottle at you? Yeah, yeah. Luckily, I, I stepped back a little bit. Over at another Northern English University in the city of York, another group of students from Hong Kong were talking about their experience of campaigning in the UK. They had set up a stall inside the York Student Union building with posters drawing attention to Hong Kong's pro-democracy protests. They didn't want to give their names, but described how they too were confronted by mainland Chinese students. The Chinese student came aggressively, saying that we insulted their country, our posters were not allowed to put on the walls. Some of them took mugshots and like pictures of us, so which is very concerning because there have been Chinese students trying to like expose their identity through social media. They didn't want to communicate with us, they just wanted us to take the posters down and they just threat us and say, oh, we're going to call the security. Then if you don't take it down, then they will ask you to take it down. It's not just the UK which has experienced these kinds of clashes. In Australia, New Zealand, the US and Canada, Hong Kong protesters have found themselves facing off against students from mainland China. The Chinese student at Sheffield who threw a bottle was arrested and cautioned by police. Yet we understand he's been allowed to continue his studies. And the students at York say the university student union security guards did force them to take down their Hong Kong democracy posters. Professor Christopher Hughes, a China expert at the London School of Economics, says that universities around the world are reluctant to punish students from China and indeed will sometimes take their side. The universities, you know, they see China as the goose that lays the golden eggs. It's as simple as that. You only have to look at their business plans. You look at the number of Chinese students. You look at the plans for getting philanthropic donations from China, rich Chinese businesses. So all the incentives are to go easy and not upset China. I've managed to see some examples of the online intimidation which the Hong Kong students are facing. There's one page I'm looking at where the man who attacked the Sheffield campaigners seems to be joking about it. You could roughly translate what he says as, oops, I threw a bottle. Another post asked people to go along to pro-Hong Kong democracy events held by Sheffield and Liverpool University students. And it suggests they take photographs of the participants. These have then been posted online. 
And that really does scare students. Certainly that was the case with the one student who's agreed to speak to me who actually comes from mainland China. It turned out he was a supporter of the Hong Kong democracy campaign. I support democracy in Hong Kong. I do support the democracy movements in China. So my views are definitely not in line with my government. And um, <laughs> there's a probability that someone from the like Chinese spy agency or stuff is listening to this radio right now. If he happens to like be able to recognize my voice, <laughs> maybe the next time I go back to China, um, not many good things are going to happen to me. No. You're seriously worried that by talking to me, you're taking a risk? Yeah, I am. Yes, well, it's very kind of you to speak to me. Are you worried about other students seeing you? Yes, I am. If there are Chinese students in my school recognize me on the radio show, um, honestly, I don't know what happened to me. And that report was by the BBC's Paul Moss. But right now, let's cross on over to the money desk where Nosikia Zuma is standing by to give us the latest economics news. Thank you, Samora. Good evening. Nigerian President Muhammadu Buhari has signed into law a bill that amends legislation on agreements related to offshore oil production. While offshore oil projects are among the most challenging for companies to develop, they have helped boost oil output in the last few years for Nigeria, which is Africa's top crude producer. South Africa's Mineral and Energy Minister Gwedemandashe has dismissed a protest by environmental activists outside the Cape Town's International Convention Centre as insignificant. The protesters are demanding a speedy switch from fossil fuels to renewable energy. Mandashe gave the keynote address at the Africa World Week conference. He says South Africa is working hard to ensure a balance between energy security while ensuring environmental integrity. Quite a very difficult balance to strike because, uh, you know, in South Africa sometimes uh, people want us to move with the, with the speed in terms of meeting the requirements environmentally. They even want to tell us that we must switch off all the coal-generated power stations until you tell them that, no, we can do that, but we will we'll breathe fresh air in darkness. Facebook has unveiled a new logo for the company to distinguish it from its apps. The social media company says it will start using the new brand within its products and marketing materials and will update the Facebook for business website over the coming weeks. In June, the company began including its apps that include Messenger, Instagram and WhatsApp. A clear majority of shareholders has voted against South Africa's retailer ShopRite's chairperson Crystal Weasel's reappointment as director of the company. On Monday at the company's annual general meeting, shareholders holding more than 61% of ordinary ShopRite shares voted against him, but Wiz retained his seat on the board thanks to his holding of shares that have special voting rights. He controls 42% of the voting rights in the ShopRite group, with almost a third of that coming from 
from his shares with special voting rights. We says he does not believe the vote results demonstrated distrust in him. He lost more than 155 million US dollars after investment company Steinhoff collapsed in 2017 amid extensive corporate fraud. While Wiz was reappointed chairperson on Monday evening, there remain questions how long he will keep the job. He has been in the position for 27 years and was last up for re-election in 2017. Director of ShopRite say succession plan is in place and the board will discuss it in the coming months. South Africa's rent has urged for firmer extending a rally sparked by Moody's decision to keep the country's credit rating at investment grade despite a dismissal budget last week showing a fast rising budget deficit and public debt. The rent is up 0.3% at 14.80 to the US dollar. Moody's kept South Africa's sovereign debt at BAA3, the lowest rung of investment grade, but revised the outlook on that rating to negative, citing deterioration in the economic growth outlook and rising debt. The rent has also been helped by a weaker dollar and optimism that the United States and China may be on the verge of reaching a preliminary trade agreement. But traders warn South Africa's rent's search may be short-lived. Looking at your financial indicators, the US dollar is trading at 360.63 Nigerian Naira, 10.74 Budzona Bula, at 102.40 Kenyan Shilling, and at 13.28 Zambian Kwacha. In BRICS currencies, one US dollar will cost you 3.99 Brazilian real, 63.34 Russian ruble, 70.45 Indian rupee, 7.02 Chinese yuan, and at 14.80 South African rand. The US dollar is also trading at 77 pence to the British pound and at 89 cents to the euro. Looking at commodities, gold is trading at $1,404, a platinum at $933 per ounce. The price of Brent crude oil is $62.18 a barrel. For Channel Africa News, I'm Nosy Chizuma. And now it's time for your latest sport. Here's Neto Chimani. Thank you, Samara. A very good afternoon, sport fans. Starting off with rugby news. Springboks fans have gathered at the OR Tambo International Airport to meet the team on their arrival from Yokohama, Japan. The first group of Rugby World Cup champions have landed after making history when the national team beat England 32-12 on Saturday. The Springboks are the first team to lose an opening match of the pool stage and go on to win the Rugby World Cup. Four Springboks have been added to the Barbarians squad ahead of the Invitation Team's November Internationals. The Barbarians announced on Tuesday that Rugby World Cup winners Tendai Bistim Tawarira, Lucanio Am, Makazole Mapimpi and Heschel Yankees will join them as they prepare to face Fiji at Twickenham on November the 16th. The Barbarians will also face Brazil in Sao Paulo on November the 20th and Wales in Cardiff on November the 30th. The Springboks 
Cotetti will also be joined by former, blo- former Boca fly half Marone Stein as the Barbarians continue to name star attractions ahead of the Fiji match. More names will be added to the Barbarians list in the coming days, with England coach Eddie Jones to mentor the Barbarians against the Fijians. On to cricket news. Paul Rock's assistant coach Jeffrey Doyana is expecting the Mzansi Super League second edition to reach new heights this season when the new competition launches on Friday. The opening game, the opening game of the 2019 season takes place in Johannesburg on Friday when defending champions the Josie Stars welcome the Cape Town Blitz to the Wanderers in a repeat of the 2018 final. Toyana, who will be assisting Adriana Pirelli at Boland Park, is looking forward to the start. I think it will be bigger and better now this time around, you know, because the team has identity now as well. They know some of the players there. Yes, I think maybe like they'll miss a guy like Bravo. I mean, like it was superb for them last year, dancing with them after every game. And uh, yes, as I say, I think it will be bigger, you know, and better. And the people of Pal, like they do, like uh, like love their sports, whether it's cricket or rugby. They like always come to support their teams. And uh, like they, they play they like our 12 men, you know, like in a way, with, with all the support that they give us. And it's them that pushed us last year as well to, to finish in the, the play of sport. Mm. So, yes, to the people of Pal, I mean, yes, we're excited to come back and we can't wait to get back there. The Rocks play their first match of the competition on Sunday when the welcome Cape Town rivals the Blitz to Pal. The men from the Winelands have assembled a strong squad for the competition, one that will be led by Proteus captain FF Duplessis and also includes the likes of Englishman James Vince, Sri Lanka all-rounder Isuru Udana, retired South Africa all-rounder JP Dumini and another national star in Aidan Makram, whose participation remains uncertain due to a hand injury. Toyana feels they have a good enough team to challenge for the top prize. I think we've got 95% of the players that we're eyeing, which, which is a good number for us. So yes, we're excited with the squad. We're excited with the JP joining us. We're excited with the Dwayne joining us. We're excited with Haldersfield coming in to join us. I mean, James Vince as well and all those type of players. So yes, we're quite excited and um, we're quite happy like with the squad that we, we picked. In football news, for the second time, the CAF Referees Committee has appointed female match officials for a men's tournament. That is the upcoming total under-23 Africa Cup of Nations Egypt 2019. The appointments build on a CAF's commitment to include more female match officials in its competitions, which began with the appointment of three female match officials for the total under-17 Africa Cup of Nations in Tanzania last April, a first in the history of of male calf competitions. Rwandan referee Salma Mukasanga will lead the female match official trio, joined by assistant referees Diana Chikotesha and Fathia Jamomi of Zambia and Morocco, respectively. The female trio have been included in the 25-man list of match officials, consisting of 12 referees and 13 assistant referees. 
Cameroon coach Tony Conceicao has named three new caps in his squad for the Africa Cup of Nations qualifiers against Cape Verde and Rwanda. The 2021 hosts have qualified automatically for the finals but will take part in the preliminaries, in part in case they are stripped of hosting writing rights again, as they were in 2019. Adverb striker Lamer has earned a first call from Conceicao, along with goalkeeper Hasho Gerido, who turns out for CIK Kamsara in Guinea and former French junior international defensive midfielder Frank Yaves Bamberg who plays in Portugal for Maritimo. There are also recalls for FC Porto striker Vincent Abubakar and Moscron midfielder Fabrice Olinga who had been dropped for the 2019 Cup of Nations in Egypt. Cameroon hosts Cape Verde Islands next Wednesday before a trip to Rwanda four days later. Thank you for choosing Channel Africa. For Channel Africa Sport, I'm Neto and Ito Chamani. This is Africa Digest. And that wraps up this hour of Africa Digest. We're back again at 1900 hours Central African time. For comments on the show, do send us an email to info at channelafrica.co.za or send us a WhatsApp to plus 27763003327. You can also tweet us at Channel Africa one Taking us to the top of the hour is moving on by Asha. We'll see you again later. I had to run away and hide. Something happened in the mid-